0: Let me get turned on here. Well, it's just, you know, this this podium is not designed for you. We need to move this. There we go. When I preach, I'm kind of, um, I was a Baptist for many years, and uh, I can be a pulpit pounder. So I call these sort of anorexic (laughs) podiums. I was in England one time, and I pounded one, and it almost completely (laughs) fell over. So... uh, it's sure great to see all of you. Thanks so much for the invitation. I, um, I was thinking, I imagine there are a few things uh, in this world that are more exciting to emerge than a new church. So this is wonderful to see. Uh, appreciate your Pastor Levi. Uh, A few days ago, I said, well, if I'm going to preach at this fledgling church, I better learn a little more about it. So I went online, and I saw his uh, video sort of vision, the raison d'etre, as it were, of the congregation, and I must say, it was, I believe, uh, the best succinct church philosophy that I've ever heard. It was outstanding. I wish I'd have said it myself. It was so good. So I'm really glad to be here. And so glad to see my dear friend Ardell and Lois uh, through some of the health challenges. So glad they're here and glad to see all of you. Uh, I'd like to uh, have us turn on our Bibles. I hear this is a church where people are allowed to bring their Bibles. Is that correct? And you actually believe the Bible? Good. I, I'm, I'm glad that uh, that rumor uh, can be confirmed. Uh, I'd like us to turn in our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Now, you probably are aware that the... Uh, My title today is The Greatness of the Church. The Greatness of the Church. I need to warn you, I've never been accused of preaching too long. um, But it could be so succinct that if you don't listen closely, it'll be over and you'll say, wait a minute, what did he say? So (laughs) you might want to listen carefully. Uh, So uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3 You might think that that title, uh, The Greatness of the Church, is strange for a Protestant minister. Uh, You might think it more suitable for uh, a Roman Catholic sermon. And yes, believe it or not, there are occasionally Roman Catholic sermons. Uh, Their view, of course, is that the church is the mediator of Christ's mediation. I was talking to a, a well-known uh, Roman Catholic theologian one time, and he says, Andrew, the best way to understand our view of the sacraments is that basically the church itself is one big sacrament. Well, that's the Roman Catholic view. That's not the biblical view. Um, but here, having said that, you might think, well, Protestants don't believe that. And uh, To say that the church is great is something that perhaps we shouldn't be saying, but I'd like to challenge that idea today. Uh, The Reformers were all high churchmen. They had a very high view of the church. Now, it's true that 20th century uh, evangelicals often have not had a high view of the church, but that's not true of the Reformation tradition. Luther And especially Calvin and Knox and the Reformed had a very high view of the church. Uh, So it's important for us to understand that not them, but the Bible itself articulates a very high view of the church. So in the time remaining today, uh, I'm going to articulate uh, three, maybe four reasons that the church is great, and I think this is probably suitable for a new congregation to understand the, not just the importance, but also the uh, greatness of the church. So we're in 1 Timothy chapter 3. I'm going to read uh, this chapter. It's not very long, 16 verses. I'm really only going to concentrate on one of them today, but it's important in reading the Word of God to get into the atmosphere Of the scriptures. Uh, Ideally, we would read the whole book, but don't really have time for that. So let's start in verse 1 and read through verse uh, 16, the whole chapter. It is a worthy statement if any man aspires to the office of an overseer. It is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach. Oh, by the way, overseer, bishop, presbyter in the Bible, it's all the same thing. Okay, Bible doesn't teach you. Episcopal church government, certainly not Roman Catholic church government. They're deacons, and they're what we call elders, pastors, presbyters, overseers. That's all the same thing. An overseer, then, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money— He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife, And good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons, obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who, or God who, was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. Now, let's talk about, beginning here, some of these ways... That the church is great. I would say, first of all, on the basis of verse uh, 15, that the church is great in that it is the guardian of orthodoxy. The guardian of orthodoxy. The church, the text says there, is the pillar and support of truth. So we see here, and one reason I wanted to read from verse 1, the transition from specific guidelines for criteria for selecting officers to a more generalized universal truth. Basically, Paul's saying, I'm letting you know why this is important. Why are these criteria important? Well, they're important because of a general truth, and that is the church is the ground and the support, pillar and support of the truth. Now, Uh, He's really, notice he says there, the living God. It seems there's very solemn language. He's really impressing on Timothy the solemnity of this topic, the solemnity of the church. When he speaks about the house or the household of God, he's clearly connecting with Old Covenant Israel, uh, the tabernacle, and the temple dwelling. He's really hinting then that in many ways his presence in the church is analogous to his presence with old covenant israel in the temple and tabernacle it's not identical there is certainly a difference between the old and new covenant but nonetheless there are a lot of similarities and this is one of them the people of god of the new covenant are the dwelling place of god as were the people of god in the old covenant Uh, now before we go on it would be helpful to understand what the church is. I believe most of you here are knowledgeable. You know that in the New Testament, church is almost always a translation of, what's the Greek word? Ekklesia. Uh, Now, church doesn't quite, the term church in English doesn't quite mean that. It comes from like several languages. The prominent one we would know is kirk, uh, which just really means the Lord's house. But that's really true only metaphorically. Uh, it's true the church is not a building. The church is not physically a building. You can't have an ecclesia uh, without a physical building, and that's often the case. Certainly with our brothers and sisters in North Korea and China and in other places. The ecclesia actually means the, the assembly. And it goes back to the old, sort of an old Greek and, and Roman idea a group of citizens that would meet. And they would establish policies or decide what was going to go on in their city. It's the assembly, the local assembly. Uh, Tyndale translated it congregation, not church. And if you've read Tyndale's New Testament, the first translator of the uh, New Testament into English, that's what he calls it, the congregation. I think maybe in some cases the assembly. Now, I would say here that the whole... COVID drama has exposed some very fuzzy thinking about this. Uh, My wife and I, uh, well, this was, I think, in March or April of last year, about a year ago, there was a minister, was writing in in a local paper, and he says, I just want everyone to know that these lockdowns seem tough, but actually, they're a blessing in disguise. And that got my attention. He says, because... They have forced the church away from the Sunday meetings and into the world. And now the church can be the church. And you know what I thought? I said, that guy's nuts. (laughs) He doesn't know what he's talking about. Uh, What he was really saying, if I were to translate it accurately, is it's good to abolish the church. (laughs) Because the church is the assembly. So I want to make it very pointed and very concrete. Would you like to know what the church is? This is the church. (laughs) This is the church. This is great, but it's not the church. I'm glad we have it. This is the church. And the extent to which we surrender to Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord is the extent to which the living God is in our midst, hear it now, in a way that he is not in our midst at other times. Now somebody says, well, Andrew, Kent, aren't we supposed to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Isn't God a present in our lives individually? Oh, yes, he is. I could never deny that. Nonetheless, God is present among his people in a unique way in the church, in a way that he is not present at other times. That's one of the main reasons, by the way, it's important to be at church, at church, at the assembly. The church, then, is the assembly. There is, therefore, no virtual church. I'd also like to suggest, and this is a minor problem and has been for a long time in the Reformation tradition, in the strictest sense, there's also no such thing as the invisible church. Now, it is true that there is an invisible dimension to the church. And what does that mean? That means God sees who true believers are. And who the hypocrites are. So there's no question that there is an invisible dimension to this body that we cannot see. Uh, but if you read the Bible, you'll find out there's not really any invisible ecclesia in the Bible. Paul wrote to churches like this. It's all very, uh, one theologian said, pinchable. It's all very tactile. It's all where you can touch And by the way, you can't get that at Zoom church, which is not really church. There's nothing wrong with using modern technology. I use it for important things. Just understand that it's not the church. Getting back to the text, the church is the pillar and support of truth. Let me define those words briefly. By pillar, the ground and the foundation. The ground and the foundation. And then of course there's the support that seems to be referring to columns ancient architecture different from ours but we know the same basic idea there's sort of the foundation and then the pillars holding up the building now if that's the case notice the text clearly the church is not the truth god is true and the truth jesus is the truth, the way, the truth, the life. The Bible is the truth. John 17 says so, and other texts declare or imply so. But know this, the church holds up the truth, God's truth in the world. I would like to say that the church, then, is the institutional fortification of divine truth in the world the institutional fortification of divine truth in the world. And the fact that when I say that, a lot of evangelicals would say, oh, that's just so Roman Catholic, shows they really don't understand, in my view, the Word of God. Just because that has been perverted by Roman Catholics and Anglo-Catholics and a few others, many Eastern Orthodox, doesn't mean that the underlying truth is not what it is. The Church is the pillar and the support of the truth. It is, I said, the guardian of orthodoxy. Orthodoxy simply means correct belief or right belief. It is the responsibility of the church, including this church, to be a guardian of orthodoxy. That's not the responsibility of other divinely established institutions like the family, which is the basic creational institution. But it's not the responsibility of the family to be the formal guardian of Christian orthodoxy. Certainly not the responsibility of the state, God forbid, but rather the church. The truth is held in sacred trust by the church. This is also why ecclesial apostasy is such a betrayal. If families go away from the faith or individuals, and tragically that happens a great deal, they tend not to have a huge negative impact on society. Even if the state apostatizes, as ours does, that can have a bigger impact, but not like when the church apostatizes. Because when this institution that should be the institutional fortification of divine truth in the world, when that apostatizes, oh my, there is the possibility for massive defection. And of course we've seen that historically. And tragically we're seeing it again today. Because the church is the guardian of orthodoxy, the church must be committed to the centrality of the word. Therefore the Bible must be central in the assembly. The Bible must be central in the assembly. That's what it means, by the way, to be a very good Protestant, one thing. The Puritans understood it. Others that were not Puritans that were Reformed understood it. Calvin understood it. Luther understood it. Uh, Many of the earlier Baptists understood it. Oh, yes, they understood that what I'm doing now, standing up, preaching the Word of God, that is the central aspect of the assembly, of the ecclesia, of the worship. Not programs. Not the seven-step addiction recovery program. uh, Not musical entertainment. uh, Not very aesthetically pleasing liturgy. Now, I do appreciate and have good friends that are committed to high liturgy, and uh, they are soundly within the faith, and they love the Lord. But I must say, while all churches are liturgical to some degree, even today, as simple as it is, there is a liturgy. The obsession with with having a beautiful liturgy, and in which the Word of God is sort of pushed off to the side... And the high crowning point of the service is communion. Yeah, that's not quite, I believe, what the Bible teaches. The center of the church meeting is the spirit-empowered preaching and teaching of the Word of God. And if we lose that, we've lost a great deal. Uh, That, by the way, and prayer are the pastor's job description. Read the book of Acts and the Chapter, chapter 6, I believe, in the selection of uh, the first servants, probably what we call deacons. That's his job description. It's not to, quote, cast a beautiful vision or evaluate staff or be sort of like the scaled-down ecclesial CEO. This man's job is prayer and the ministry of the Word. And I've talked to people and their attitude toward that is, well, if our ministry did only that, if we really stress that, then the church probably would die. And my response is, then let it die. Because if something else must substitute for the preaching and teaching of the Word of God, and that is successful, that is worse than no church at all. Better not to have a church than have a church that's not centered in the Word of God. I mentioned music I'd like to say also that music itself is, or at least should be, a ministry of the Word. Uh, great church music uh, preaches great theology. Uh, I was uh, with a friend yesterday, a man that Dr. Kennedy has known for a number of years, Eric Anderson and his church up in Crosby, and at our conference he began by singing six or seven wonderful, old, meaty hymns of the faith. And, and it occurred to me that if I went into one of, not liberal churches, but conservative, but sort of modernized churches that live every Sunday morning on what I call the laser light show, and somebody said, well, uh, the sermon is coming, and I could have any say in it, I'd say f- just for one Sunday... Maybe I can make a suggestion. Let me grab an old hymn book and sing, instead of a sermon, sing ten of these hymns that I'll give you. And those ten hymns would probably articulate a much better theology than most preaching in most churches today. I would say that the Caleb playlist is not suitable for public worship. And the substandard music leads to a substandard ministry. And it's not the job of the elders of the congregation to outsource the music to the experts. Thank God we have experts. We have one here today, probably more than one. Thank God for them and the great blessing they are. It's not the responsibility of the elders to say, well, (laughs) they have a degree in music and I only have a degree in theology. But we're just going to kind of let them do their own thing. And they know what the vibes are. They know the Caleb music being listened to by the congregation during the week. I'm going to let them decide. Nope. Elders, it's your responsibility to determine the music in the congregation. And if you go over that set for the week and say, no, that's pretty bad. We're not going to do that one. Now, that's just what you need to do. The church, I would say, is commissioned to defend the faith. Uh, Here's an interesting fact. Um, As far as I can tell, all of the New Testament books, all of them except Philemon, warn about false teaching or false teachers in some way. I also believe that's true in its own way in the Old Testament, except for maybe Song of Solomon and Ruth. Everywhere in all of these books, the vast majority of them, there is some warning about false teachers or false teaching. So this is not a secondary issue. Uh, in a fallen world, the truth is persistently under attack. Oh, this isn't a new thing, by the way. Read Paul's epistles. Read what he said in 1st 2nd Timothy and Titus. The warnings, the warnings. Be careful, be careful, be careful. Because false teachers are either present or soon on their way. Satan has a vested interest, not so much, listen to this, not so much in destroying the church, but in corrupting her message. But in corrupting her message. Think how much more effective it is for Satan. Not if the church dies. We know biblically that can't happen. If, however, he subverts and corrupts and poisons her message and all of the evil that can ensue. Today's church includes, uh, sadly, and by the way, I'm not even talking about liberal churches, mainline Liberalism is just on its last leg. It's, it's on its last leg in mainline churches, but it's found a new lease on life in conservative churches. Um, I'm not an old man, but I'm not a young man, and one of the most remarkable, truly extraordinary development that I've seen in my lifetime is how quickly, over the last three to five years... Staunchly conservative, evangelical, and reformed, confessionally reformed churches have bought into critical race theory and cultural Marxism and uh, statism and multiculturalism. I'm not talking about the United Methodists. I'm not talking about the United Church of Christ. I'm talking about good old sound, orthodox, Bible-believing, PCA, OPC, Southern Baptist, on, down, independent, down-the-line churches. I I do believe this has happened so swiftly that there is no other thing to say except that there is a diabolical element to it. It is satanically inspired. The church is required to expose and oppose and to keep herself theologically pure, And it is a part of the job description and declaring the word of God for you elders here to preach and warn about these evil things that happen. You say, well, I just want to, I just like our pastor because he never says anything negative. It's all uplifting and positive. My friends, Jesus Christ could not have passed that test. (laughs) Paul the apostle could not have passed that test. It's true that negative ministries alone are bad. Discernment ministries alone, that's all they ever do is find fault. Yeah, that's generally bad. We're called to preach the truth, the positive truth and the negative truth, both of them. The church, then, is the guardian of orthodoxy. And then I would like to say, second of all, the church is great in that it is the community of memory. The community of memory. Uh, I've adopted that phrase from the late Chuck Colson. That's how he described the church. It's a beautiful expression. And I believe it's supported by the scripture. In Luke twenty-two nineteen. 19, of course, Jesus is speaking there with his disciples right near the end and uh, the Lord establishing what we call the Lord's Supper. And he says, do this, the Lord's Supper, in remembrance of me. The church itself is the community of memory. Other texts reveal the church as a community to memorialize vital events. And I'd like you to think about that. The church meets every Sunday, among other things, to memorialize vital events. So, today's Sunday. Your church often meets on Saturday. Right now, and now we're meeting on Sunday. Why, generally, does the church meet? And it has for 2,000 years. Why does it meet on Sundays? I mean... We just have just sort of like a little raffle and say, oh, what day we're going to pick? Oh, oh, it came up Sunday. Fascinating. No, we know from the word of God, why do we meet on Sunday? It's in celebration of the resurrection. We celebrate Easter once a year, but it's very interesting that the early church Easter was every Sunday. Every Sunday we meet. Your presence here today and mine, whether we consciously are aware of it or not, is memorializing and recognizing the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ every single Sunday. And that resurrection states, I think I said this on Facebook this morning, that resurrection essentially states, read Acts chapter 2, read Peter's message about how our Lord rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, and took David's throne, sent down gifts, particularly the main gift, the Holy Spirit, and essentially... Declared formally, Jesus is Lord. That basically is what we're saying every Sunday when we come together. Jesus is Lord. And Caesar is not Lord. And nothing else, and nobody else is Lord. The church exists to keep these great events, creation, Christ's atoning death, his resurrection, his ascension, his present session. The church exists largely to keep these memories alive. Now, uh, <clears throat> the church, excuse me, the truth requires a community. Now, think about this for a minute. I don't misunderstand. The Bible is truth. The Bible is the source of truth. But, but it requires a community to, to transmit it. God didn't simply inspire a word and leave a word here. He inspired a word, infallible and errant, and gave it to a community. You keep this. You preserve it. These are the oracles of God. Jesus founded a community. The Bible can be shelved. A community cannot be shelved. You know, I think about uh, the redemptive events that happened 2,000 years ago and a book written from 2,000 to 4,000 to 3,000 to 4,000 years ago. How has the truth been kept alive? It's been kept alive by the church of Jesus Christ humanly, and of course, supernaturally by the Holy Spirit of God. This, by the way, is true apostolic succession. Roman Catholics will say sometimes, you Protestants, you lo- particularly you low-church Protestants, you don't really believe in apostolic succession. And we need to say, no, we beg to differ. We actually do believe in the only real apostolic succession. The true apostolic succession is the truth of the word of God and the apostles that is handed down in the church from generation to generation faithfully. That, my friends, is true apostolic succession. Think about it. Perhaps you'll be moved by this truth that about 2,000 years ago, a very dogged, probably not very good-looking, perhaps short, Jewish apostle, preached the gospel. He took a trip on a boat, and he preached the gospel in what is today Southern Europe. Wasn't content to stay in Jerusalem. Jesus had already said, you need to move outward from here. It's good that you started here, but I'm sorry, you need to move out from here. And he did that. And churches started as a result of that. And over time, those churches, some of them, not the greatest churches, but nonetheless, the gospel was there. The gospel moved northward into northern Europe, then across the English Channel, into England and Ireland and Scotland. Then a few hundred years ago, 17th century, many of those people came to North America. And many of them believed the Bible, and others followed later. And I just told you, from a human, linear, historical perspective, how the gospel came to you. Because 2,000 years ago, a man was willing to carry the gospel to southern Europe. The church is the community of memory. The church, therefore, is deeply, deeply anti-modern. It was the uh, perverse poet Ezra Pound that really kind of described uh, modernism this way. This is a succinct definition. Make it new. Somebody asked Ezra Pound, well, how do you describe modernism? Make it new. That's the imperative. Uh, make it new. It's a worldview. Uh, whatever comes later is better. I mean, just as my iPhone 11 is better than iPhone 8, so the sexual ethics of today are obviously far superior to those 100 or 200 years ago. The church is about preserving the best of the past. Not that everything in the past should be preserved or that everything new is wrong, but the church is inherently anti-modern. Why? It's the community of memory. It's keeping alive very old truths in our world that is obsessed with novelty. Ideological novelty, theological novelty, novelty, sociological, philosophical novelty. Oh, the hatred for old things, including the hatred... For the gospel. I imagine uh, if the apostles could travel here today and for some reason not really knowing what had been going on on earth, they would be amazed. And if somehow we could welcome them here and sit in the back, they would be startled by these metal boxes in which they traveled to be here today. With huge, strange-looking wheels, and they would come in and see all of this, and they would say, "What is this?" They would see artificial illumination. What is there a candle here? What is this? How is this possible? And if all the amplification, what? And perhaps they would be a little frightened, and they'd look around on our colorful clothes and say, "My my, how strange it is!" And then, and then, they would look up. And they would see this. And they would say, I know what that is. Ours didn't quite look like that. Oh, ours wasn't that beautiful. It was on a parchment, and perhaps it was rolled up. There wasn't as much of that. This has maybe animal skins, and look how beautiful these pages are cut. But I know what that is. That's the living word of the living God. That's the sacred scriptures. And when they hear us sing would say, "Mm, this is very different, but they're mentioning the name of Jesus and his blood and his resurrection. I know what that is. And if we observe communion, they would say, we didn't do it quite like this, but yes, I know what this is. And perhaps have a baptism. Oh yes, absolutely, we know what this is. And they would leave saying, yes, we know what this is. This is the community of memory. This is what we established. Do you see how important and how great the church of Jesus Christ is? And then I would say the church, third of all, is God's prized possession. This will probably be the last time I have you turn. Turn over, if you will, to Acts chapter 20. Most of you know know the word. This includes an account of Paul, the last time he's going to see the Ephesian elders. And uh, he desperately wanted to see them. He's headed eventually to Rome. He feels this inward compulsion to get back uh, to Rome. and I, I'm not going to take time to read his just a beautiful so it's actually a valedictory, sort of a, a spiritual valedictory to these Ephesian elders. You, if you 've read it, you know how weighty it is, how utterly weighty. I mean, think about it, the last time he's going to see these men, and humanly speaking. He is handing down to them this truth. So he has no time for anything superfluous. In the middle of that, as he comes toward the end, notice what he says. And this is the main thing I want to point out. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Now, that certainly is a strange text, and exegetes sometimes puzzle over that. I mean, really? God's blood? It's clearly implied there, because God is a spirit. This is referring to Christ's blood, and since Christ is God, then, in that sense, God's blood is shed on the cross. Powerful reference to the deity of Christ, And Christ's bloodshedding is, in the sense in which I have described it, God's bloodshedding. Now, here's an extraordinary fact. The Bible teaches that Christ died for the church and not just for individuals. Christ died for the church as a people, as a corporate body. And Christ died for this body. For this body, not just us as individuals. This is another hint, by the way, from the Old Testament. If you read in Exodus 19.5, the Jews were called his prized possession that he redeemed, that Jehovah redeemed, bought. Church, the church is the new or the true Israel. It's the inheritor of the Old Testament promises. We are the true Israel. We are the people of God. I would ask you then to consider what God spent for the church. Now, most of us wouldn't pay $40,000 for a 1994 Volkswagen with 400,000 miles on it. You know why you wouldn't do that? Because it's not worth it. Apparently, the church was worth a lot. For God to send his son to shed his blood on the cross. Not inherently worth it, because we're sinners. But nonetheless, worth saving, worth redeeming. And therefore, and you must understand this, Christ was punished on the cross, but God was there with him. The Bible says God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. I love the words of P.T. Forsyth when he said God gave his own right arm on the cross. Not just the agony of Christ, but the agony of God the Father and the Spirit for the price that was paid. The church often has today an inferiority complex, and it has for many years. Uh, The non-essential parts of culture and society were to be closed. During the COVID knockdown, lockdowns, <laughs> knockdowns, too. <laughs> non-essential. And because the Church of Jesus Christ, the vast majority, including conservatives, has acted as though it's non-essential, it was very easy to conform to that. Some of you probably saw last year there was a wonderful clip of a Pentecostal black Pentecostal minister and <laughs> He said, he got in his pulpit one Sunday during all this COVID lockdowns. And he says, you know, I need to apologize to the governor. I've been criticizing the governor for locking down the church or saying the church is non-essential. He says I need to apologize for that because I must say I figured out the church has made itself non-essential. And he was right. Do everything else except come to church. Don't support the church with prayer, money, don't support the elders. I don't believe there's anybody here like that. But if you are, woe be to you. You need to repent. We need to repent and change. Uh, the church is its own independent government. I don't have time to go into sphere of sovereignty, but I think it's imperative to understand that when we hear the term government, it's wrong to automatically assume the state? <laughs> the government today, there was a, a decision made by the government today, and we say, oh, what happened in what, St. Paul? Here is the capital. Ha- in St. Paul, oh, I'm sure there was a pronouncement out of St. Paul or Washington, D.C. The government said today, we need to subvert that. When somebody says that to you, oh, the, the church elders made a decision then. But you see your church elders form a government that is just as legitimate as any state or political government and there's family government and derivatively business government and educational government all of these separate governments so that not one of them so that not one of them can monopolize government and consider itself God's great gift to tell everybody else what to do Well, today, of course, when you hear government, the reason that you believe state, referring to the state, or old expression, civil magistrate, is because most people today, including most Christians, believe that is the central God-established government. It is one of them. It is not the whole of government. Elders, your job is to take a vocal public stand on vital issues, not only in the church, but outside the church. I want you to think about that. I think one thing we're seeing in the last three to five years, all of these churches that said, well, we're not going to address cultural issues, we're only going to address what's going on in the church. Those wicked Arminians, we're going to make sure we expose them. And those charismatics, they're bad, we're going to take care of that, we're going to be strict. What about abortion? Well, that's, that's, that's something. We're not, that's, that's beyond our sphere. What about homosexual marriage? Well, that's kind of not really called to do that. And do you know what has happened? Now as our culture has become radically apostatized and, if anything, more aggressive than ever, these have infiltrated and attacked the church. And now many of these churches are having to scramble. Wait, wait, wait a minute. That's, no, we I, I shouldn't have to address that. We want to we condemn all the Armenians. <laughs> Our job is to stand on vital cultural issues. And then finally, I just had to end with this. I I am an optimist, so I must end by saying the church also is great because it is the Lord's agency of earthly victory. We know Jesus' statement in Matthew 16, 18, that he'll build his church. The gates of Hades won't prevail against it. The commentator, Leon Morris, said that's a puzzling metaphor. It certainly is puzzling, isn't it? In the ancient world, uh, gates were more significant than they are today, Both, both functionally and symbolically. They controlled the ingress and egress of cities. Couldn't get a helicopter and drop something in. They were heavily guarded, therefore. They were often adorned with very precious metals and jewels, symbols of great power and might, and dignity. Well, Hades, hell, often it's translated in the Bible, is the place of the dead, the place of the grave uh, and its occupants. Uh, This is Satan's fixed and final great stronghold. The soul that sins, it shall die, the Bible says. The wages of sin is death. Reading read in 1 Corinthians 15 that the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Isn't that interesting? Not Satan, but the last enemy. I want to tell you something. I, some of us have had those close to us pass away and die. Believers, some unbelievers too perhaps. Death is a terrible thing. I'll some time hear Christians say, oh, so-and-so died a beautiful death. There is no beautiful death. It might be a peaceful death, but it's not a beautiful death. Death is a visual testimony to evil in the world and the power of sin in the world. Jesus Christ came to destroy it, and he will destroy it totally, definitively, one day at the final resurrection. It robs us of those that we love so much. A visible, striking testimony of Satan's kingdom is death. Every graveyard, even next to a church, every graveyard is a visible testimony of Satan's work. You see then, according to Matthew chapter 16, the Lord is predicting the failure of the great satanic stronghold and his kingdom when the church attacks. Uh, I should say, if the church attacks. The church often doesn't see this assault as a prime calling, It sees its obligation to edify the saints, and that is an obligation. Observe the Lord's table, that also is an obligation. Baptism, yes. Positive preaching, yes. Prepare for eternity, yes. But the church is an agency to advance God's reign against Satan's reign in the earth. That's part of the job description. Evangelizing sinners and exposing error and false ideologies and praying for great victories over addictions and healing the sick and confronting evil publicly. That's a part of the responsibility of the church. And if the church attacks, she will not fail. Therefore, the church, the role of the church is not limited to internal, pious, so called spiritual matters. Um, this weekend is the first time that I have ever. And I've preached a lot, I mean not everywhere, but quite a lot in my life, Every in Minnesota. It's great to be here. Particularly, it's such a calm time, a Pacific time in your <laughs> state's history. I was talking to a couple of uh, Minnesotans, and they said, you know, our state generally, and this is true not just of evangelicals, has a history of kind of a, just a warm pietism. Um, Swedish influence, perhaps a lot of Lutheran influence historically and so on. Uh, and that's true not just in Minnesota, true of a lot of places, especially true in Canada where my son ministers. It's true all over, evangelicalism. But I'm afraid that's not the picture that we have in the Bible. And the, the, the church has become dangerously imbalanced on that point. Now, I want you to think about something for a minute. Uh, many people don't. We, we, we read specific biblical texts, and we must, but sometimes we need to step back and look at the kind of the flow of the Bible. Now, I want you to think about something. Have you ever noticed that most of the Bible is not about a personal, internalized, what we would call spiritual relationship to God? Have you ever thought about that? Now, some of it is, particularly in the book of Psalms. Let I me mean, think about it. We start in Genesis. God creates Adam and Eve. He tells them their responsibility is, just stay close to me and think wonderful thoughts about me. Now, that's not quite what he says. I want, I have a job for you. I have a commission for you. Take responsibility in the earth under my authority and in communion with me, of course. And then, of course, there's the fall. And then we read in chapters 4 and 5 about humans doing all sorts of, sorts of cultural things, moving outward. And there was nothing wrong with that, though some of what they produced became wrong because of their sin. Then, of course, there's God's judgment in the flood. Then there's the Tower of Babel. And then God essentially calls Abraham a nation, And if you read then from Genesis chapter 12 all the way to the end of Malachi, most of that is about God calling his people to advance in history. Advance in what we call the promised land in Canaan. And to be faithful to him. And to take ground. And then Jesus comes on the scene, our Lord and Savior, and he talks to his disciples. And he says to them, the reason I have come, in is to draw you closer to the Father, yes. And so you can constantly look inside yourselves at the private secret knowledge. That would be Gnostic. So, no, what I just said isn't true. <laughs> he teaches them, and right away, even before Matthew 28, even during his ministry, he gives them a commission. Go out and spread my kingdom, which basically is just the reign of God. The kingdom is just... There's nothing super complicated about it. It has all sorts of aspects, but it's the reign and rule of God in Christ. Jesus Christ came the first time as the inbreaking, the visible, pinchable, tactile inbreaking of the kingdom of God in the very person of Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus Christ's ministry was about, including his bloodshedding on the cross, his glorious resurrection, his ascension. And then he says to the disciples, now you've done enough. You need to sit down and contemplate how wonderful it is to be a Christian. Did you read that? <laughs> no, he says, I have a commission for you. Go to the entire world, all the nations, the ethnos, and make disciples. Disciple all the nations. That's what he said. You read Paul's epistles. Again and again, it's pressing outward. You read the book of Revelation. The people have got persecuted because they're pressing outward. So if you think about it, the Bible is essentially a book about God's plan to extend his reign in the earth. That's what the Bible is about. It's not about privatized, pietized, internalized faith. As One of my friends wrote and said, uh, as a private devotional hobby, the Bible is not about that. It is about true devotion, loving God with all of your heart, soul, strength, mind, and mind. Not to do navel-gazing, but to extend his kingdom in the earth. May then the church press forward, may this church press forward in its own way, in its own calling, in its own sphere. I appreciate what A.W. Tozer said, God gave Israel the victory as long as she marked boldly in faith. And when she stopped, the victories stopped. We need to abandon our inferiority complex. Let us recognize then that the church is great. It's great because it's the guardian of orthodoxy, the community of memory, God's prized possession, and his agency of earthly victory. I close then by saying this church is very important. More important than you and I know. Let us pray. Father, these are very convicting, solemn, eternal truths. O Holy Spirit, please convict our hearts and please inspire this congregation, a fledgling congregation, but one for which you and your Son shed your own blood. Thank you for the leadership here. O God, give them great wisdom and great strength and great confidence. Lord, give them greater faith. Forgive us for our utter lack of faith, O God. Lord, help us to have faith in your great promises. Forgive us for our little anorexic unbelief. Lord, help us to be bold. If you said it, help us to believe it and act on it. Oh Lord, bless these dear leaders lest those that are suffering and going through great physical ailment heal them quickly. We pray in faith that you will do that, not just because you love them, but to show your great might and power and glory. Help this congregation. May these folks get behind these leaders and support them and declare the truth and be faithful to your kingdom and gospel wherever they are. I pray that this church, this particular congregation, is around here 100 years from now and that a child, perhaps not even yet born, certainly not yet born, perhaps of this congregation even, will be standing in the pulpit, not in this building, no doubt, but somewhere else, faithfully preaching the gospel. Thank you for your church, dear Lord. Thank you for your people. We pray these things, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord and King. Amen.